we went to dinner uh, with John McTiernan and, um, you know, and he said, oh, I hear you just optioned a script. And I said, yeah. And he said, who did you sell it to? And I told him and he nearly fell off his chair because he was like, I optioned my first script to him. Then I heard that Mickey Rourke was coming to Cannes. It was 2005. It was um, for Sin City. And I thought, I'm mm. just going to go to Cannes and I'm going to freaking give Mickey Rourke my script. Or you can imagine my relationship with the producers <laughs> at this moment. It's just like awful. Yeah. I mean, it's just awful. Jessica Biel is in this movie. She sent me a message sort of saying, you know, like, what's going on with the movie? And I'm like, I was like, look, the movie's just a total mess. That went on for like six months where they were giving me notes and I was like recutting the movie, recutting the movie, recutting the movie. And finally, I just walked away. We are back. On today's show, we are joined by the amazing Diane Bell. And Diane Bell is a filmmaker, an educator, a writer. She knows so much about film and you can learn a lot from her. I hope you enjoy this show. I wrote this book called Shoot from the Heart, which was based on workshops that I taught for a number of years. And, you know, basically I'm just like really passionate about sharing real life information that can seriously empower people that want to make successful indie movies. And I felt like, you know, there's a lot of information about like how to do it in the conventional way, you know, like how to make a movie and it's sort of like, oh, you know, getting foreign, uh, foreign, selling foreign rights and doing this and that, whatever. And that always just seemed really out of reach to me when I wanted to make a movie. And on the other hand there's quite a few books about like guerrilla filmmaking like making films for nothing you know <laughs> which you know didn't really interest me when I came to make my first movie I didn't want to make like I wanted to make a movie that had a chance at, you know having a shot you know that would be a good film and wasn't something that was sort of like you know like a student film level you know no offense to student not, yeah but, but you know what I mean and you know and so like so I based you know I ba- the book is based on my own experiences you know when I decided to make a movie I raised money I raised like 140000 dollars, mostly from private equity sources. Uh, we shot the film. We had no stars, no connections, nothing. And the film got into Sundance and it played in the main um, competition in the festival. So not in a sidebar, you know, it was up there against uh, movies, you know, that had 10, 20 times its budget and it won two awards. And, you know, I just went, it, which is just like, I mean, it's kind of mind blowing. <laughs> you know, they say that's impossible. That it can't happen, but it did, you know, and I felt like there's so many lessons in the journey that we had. And after that, I actually made a film in a much more conventional way. Like I didn't, you know, because of the Sundance experience, you know, I got my agent and my manager and I started, you know, and I I had an idea for another little film. They're like, no, no, you have to do something bigger. And, you know, and I went down and I sort of drank the Kool-Aid on that. And I went down a much more conventional path making my second movie. And it was kind of a miserable experience. And it was that that really compelled me to want to share the information with people. Because I thought like aspiring filmmakers would look at me and we're all programmed to sort of believe you make these little films in order to make the bigger films, right? You know, that that's your calling card, right? And that, you know, and that these other films are somehow, you know, more film, you know, it's more of a film than these other, you know, and, you know, and I just realized like my experience, I'm like, that is all BS. It's just BS, you know, and it depends who you are and what your goals are. But if your thing is you want to make films, you know, that connect with people and you want to like really, you know, be uncompromising in your vision and so forth, you know, there's a way to do it and there's a way to do it successfully and you don't need permission and you don't need to do it the conventional way. And, you know, in my experience was really like the film, my second film, which had more than 10 times the budget of my first film. Um, you know, I only got one extra day of shooting, right? You know, which just fascinates me because I go like as a director, if you, you know, if you're making films, like all you want is more time. <laughs> like basically that's it, right? It's just like, I don't give a shit about anything else. I just want time, you know, so that I can actually do things well and get the scenes, you know, that I imagine like really do them, do them justice, you know? And I just thought it was so funny that you have 10 times the amount of money, but you know, suddenly everyone, you know, people have trailers, everyone's getting paid more, blah, blah, blah. You know, and it's just like, it's amazing. Like it doesn't necessarily mean that you get to make a better movie you know it's funny that you mention you know the theory is make something small and then something big comes along and the first thing that comes to mind with that uh, especially the Sundance uh, uh, roots was Colin Trevorrow's Safe to Not Guaranteed which is one of my favourite films of like the last decade I love that movie and then when I heard he got the Jurassic World gig I was like oh wow that's like a real risky like choice and that's going to be such an interesting indie movie but like with a big budget and then it just was not at all anything 
nothing like Colin Trevorrow film. No, it just felt no. like he was kind of a, a vessel who Oh, helped. totally. If you're making those kind of franchise movies, you're not making your own movie. I mean, you're, you know, absolutely, you are a vessel, you know? But he sort of leapfrogged over the sort of like what people would think is the, the normal in-between step, you know? I feel like very curiously, he sort of went from that tiny film to an absolutely massive one. Most people tend to go like, they add zeros slowly. They don't add 10 zeros at one shot. <laughs> I actually met him at a, a Michael Giacchino birthday party and um, I said to him, uh, Colin, really, yeah, like, Saved or Not Guaranteed is one of my favorite films. And like, I could just see how quickly he like kind of switched from, oh, it's just going to be about Jurassic uh, right. World to right. actually this guy knows me from something else. Well, it's probably a lot more personal. You know what I mean? You know, the thing with these smaller films is you get the chance to make the film that you want, right? You know, and that's like a huge gift. And it, as it depends on your goals, you know, it depends on what kind of film you want to make and who you are as an individual and whatever. For myself, you know, that is very important to me. Like, you know, I'm drawn to filmmaking, you know, because I want to explore certain ideas and I want to take audiences in particular journeys that are, you know, like maybe left of center and a little bit unusual, you know? And for me, like having creative control is so important. It's so, you know, and that is more important to me than having a big budget, you know, definitely. I'm not surprised when, and it's not happening as much now, but you know, when Disney sort of came along and noticed these um, indie filmmakers were like having sort of big hits with, uh, I'm trying to think of an example, uh, the guy who did like what what they do in the shadows. Um, Taika Waititi. He's so great. I, lo- I actually love him. Uh, uh, the people who made the Lego movie, uh, Lord and Miller, and they did like 21 Jump Street. And that was like this cool 80s, like, you know, I enjoyed that movie for what it was. And then Disney like, I tell you what, you can make a Star Wars movie. And then when as soon as they, they start doing their thing, Disney go, uh, uh, uh oh, like you can't do that. Well, you know, when there's so much money at stake, obviously, right? Like the more money there is, the more people are going to be worried and they're going to be protecting their money. You know, that's how it goes, you know? And even in my little experience, as I say with my second film, you know, this was a thing like, you know, the producers, I didn't have final cut in the movie and the producers, you know, it's, it's their money, right? You know, and they have a, a vision of how they're going to sell it and how they're going to make that money back. And obviously the bigger the budget gets, you know, the more is at stake in that sense, you know? So they're not going to be just like, oh yeah, take risks, <laughs> you know, do what you like and take lots of creative risks. You know, it's like, hell no, right? You're going to stick to the formula. Yeah. How does it feel when you have that, when you have, you know, you've, you've made something and you get notes back and they're like, they, they're just, you know, I mean, even like when I'm making a corporate video, like for a client and I've done something, I think that's so good. That's like so clever. I'm really happy with that. And I send it to them and they come back with feedback and I'm like, mm, you don't have a clue yeah. what you want. No, it's And you basically want me to roll the dice yeah. again in my time. Yeah. And then, yeah, yeah. So how do you deal with that? It was, I mean, my experience of that was just like, it was horrific. It sucked the life out of me. I, I ended up really like, I think in a depression, you know, I made mm. the film, you know, so I mean that film, it's called Bleeding Heart, not my title. Um, <laughs> so the uh, process of that, I think in the UK I actually got released under a different name too. I don't even know what it was. I remember some porn. Um, okay. It was, it was just like, I, you know, I had pitched the idea to a company. Like I hadn't even started writing the script. You know, I just pitched the idea. They liked mm. it. So they paid me to write it. And so even from the start and it was interesting, like it wasn't totally my film. Do you know what I mean? Cause they had ideas about how they thought it should be developed. They were sort of different yeah. to mine, but I incorporated them and, you know, and it seemed work, it kind of worked. And then after about, you know, nine months or something, we had a script that we felt excited about. They, and this company was not going to finance the movie. They were just developing and now they wanted to find someone to finance it. And so, you know, we found this um, company to finance it. The very first company we went to wanted to finance it, basically the very first one. And I just knew wow. like, it was one of those weird things where it was like, I was like, I went to one meeting and this was before I'd actually signed the contract with them. Mm-hmm. And I just went that we just know this is not going to work. Right. Like, you know, we have mm-hmm. different visions from the film. I don't even know what their vision for it is, you know, but, <laughs> but it's just not mine at all. And this is just not going to work, you know? And, yeah. um, and I remember being on the phone to my manager saying, can we get, you know, get me out of this, like, however you can, because I don't want to do it with them, you know? And, um, and then the, the, these people from this company really fought for the movie, you know, they really, really, you know, came back very strong and, you know, and I should have trusted my instincts and just walked away, but we didn't. And we went ahead and, you know, worked together. And I just have this thing, I think like making a film is like having a baby and those people that you're working with, like the producers and financiers, you know, like you're basically, you know, the partners having a baby together. And it's just like having a baby. Mm -hmm. If you don't have the same values and you don't have the same vision and everything, it's going to be messy. (laughs) It's not going to be fun, you know, and it's, and it's going to be ugly. And it did get really, it got really bad. Like actually I sort of thought when I signed, I thought, well, we'll, you know, at least we'll just 
like, we'll make the film and, you know, I just got to suck it up and it'll be fine though. And, you know, and it won't be long. Yeah. It'll be like six months or something, you know? Mm. And it turned into a sort of like two year process because once we had shot the film, I delivered an edit at like December. We shot it in November or something, you know, and I had my eight weeks or whatever. And I delivered a cut that I was pretty happy with. You know, I felt like from what we had shot and where the script was and everything, like I was happy with this cut. I felt like it needed a few tweaks and we'd be done, you know? So I thought we'd be finished with it by end of January. And that's when mm-hmm. the notes started kicking in, just what you're saying. <laughs> and I would just get all these notes. And it's just this thing because it's like a weird thing. Like taste is taste. You know, I can't necessarily yes. tell you why one take is better than the other. I can only say that that is the take, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, and these people just had very different tastes from me, which became, right. a, you know, like, so I, you know, they had a ton of notes. And also I think they were very fear-based. You know, there was a lot of fear around them. So it's always like, how do we minimize the risk? How do we make this more palatable? How do we, you know, take out the edges? Mm. And, you know, and so it was just like a tough process. So we it, that went on for like six months where they were giving me notes <sighs> and I was like recutting the movie, recutting the movie, recutting the movie. And finally, I just walked away, you know, after six months. I was like, I'm just never going to make these people happy. You know, <laughs> like, and I don't even know what this movie is anymore. It's like a fucking monster, you know? It's like, I don't know what's happened. So I gave it to them at that point. I just walked away. And right. they recut it themselves without me there. And then they showed me the cut and I just thought it was an absolute um, travesty. Like just a, you know, just a horrible film. Yeah. And, you know, and I like, I mean, yeah, and I was very honest about it. Just said, this is absolutely horrible. And if you go ahead with this, I'll try and get my name taken off it because it's not my movie. You know, it's just not wow. mine. And it's horrible to be in this kind of situation. I mean, I was totally depressed. I was just like, what is this? I, like if like people who know me know I'm not like I'm, you know, I used to be a yoga teacher. <laughs> I'm okay. like, I'm very like, it's, you know, I, I love, I'm passionate about cinema. I love it. But I also like, I value many other things too. You know, like I was sure. just like, this is not worth it. Like this level of stress and this level of kind of conflict. Like I just, you know, like it's yeah. just not like, you know, there's other things I can do. Um, but they, uh, so they had this cut of the movie and it was, it was, I would say horrible. Jessica Biel is in this movie. She, she was the star of it. So at this point, I, I remember, I think about now she's, she sent me a message sort of saying, you know, like what's going on with the movie? And <laughs> like, you know, I think she sort of was hoping that it would premiere at Toronto and, you know, had some yeah. connections there and stuff. And I was like, look, the movie's just a total mess, you know? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, it's awful to say that to an actor who's put in like amazing work, you know? Um, and, but I totally, I sent her the copy, their copy of, well, she, no, she called me up. She had seen their copy of the film and she was like, this film's like, this is not what we set out to make, you know? And I told her what happened. I said, look, I haven't even been on the film for like three months, <laughs> you know? Um, and, you know, this is their cut and I have nothing to do with this. And she was like, you know, and I remember that at that point, like I went back to the first cut of the movie, the one that I had delivered now, like nine months earlier, you know, and I watched um, that cut from nine months before. And I was like, oh my God, that was actually a good movie. <laughs> like what happened? You know, like what the heck, right? Like how is it that nine months later we're in this total mess? And I sent her a copy of that movie of the first cut. And she was in Australia at the time. And like, she got back to me within 12 hours saying that is our movie. Like, you know, like what has happened, you know? And I was very lucky that she and her people then got behind that cut. You know, the producers were absolutely furious with, of course. So when she <laughs> like, like, is like, I like this, this is really good. Did that then add some weight to your argument to say, absolutely this, is, this is what the movie is? Absolutely it did. You know, but then everything was just so sour. You can imagine my relationship with the producers <laughs> at this moment. It's just like awful. Yeah. I mean, it's just awful, you know? And so, yeah. and everyone's pissed off and it's just like, everything's gone sour. You know, it's just a terrible situation to be in with a movie. Like it, there was no, you know, there was no joy in it for me at that point. I didn't feel like, yay, we get to go back to that cut. You know, it's just like, you know, oh my God, we've just, we've, you know, I've just wasted like 10 months of my life and everyone hates the movie now. Do you know? Like nobody's enthusiastic about it. That's not a great situation to be in for selling it. You know? I mean, for me, I say when the movie premiered at Tribeca and, um, you know, and I, I went to the premiere and honestly, like sitting watching it, I just like, I, I haven't been able to watch it since then. It's like, it's almost like PTSD. Do you know what I mean? Like you're just watching it and you're just remembering like every scene. All I'm remembering is all the 
arguments, you know, and just all the nastiness and all, you know, and it's just like, there's no joy in it. And to me, cinema should be joy. You know, it should. Which like, is why we do this. It, absolutely. Absolutely. Of course, it can pay your livelihood and it can give you a, a nice life. But that's not why we do this. No, it's I like, always say like, if, you know, if money was the first and foremost thing, we'd all become bankers. You know what I mean? Like, that's what we would do. Right. We didn't become yeah. bankers because there's something, you know, it should be joyful. And that's my, and that was really, this was the impetus for me creating the workshop, teaching people about filmmaking and writing the book. Cause I was like, there is a way to do this actually. Cause I thought back and I said, I, like, I was really quite depressed about all this. You know, it wasn't something like I was taking lightly. I mean, I was like, I was depressed and I really went through a struggle inside myself. Is it worth making movies? Is it worth the struggle? Is it worth it? You know? And, and out of that came this thing. I was like, wait, when I made my first film, I mean, creatively, it was just a joyful experience. And even if the movie had not been successful at all, it would have been like one of the best experiences of my life making that film. You know, it was just like, it was so fulfilling. It was so like, just, you know, to me, everything that creativity should be, it's just like, and why I do it, you know, it's like being in that zone where you're creating stuff and you all have a common purpose. And it's just like, great. It's magic, you know? And I think like when you make a film in that spirit, that's when magic does happen and you make something that's bigger than the sum of its parts. I'm sure that's the case for a movie like Safety Not Guaranteed. Do you know what I mean? It's like everybody's there because they freaking love that movie and they want to make the best movie they can and they're all on the same page and they're so excited about it. Like that's when you make great films, you know? And so that's like really why I, you know, I was suddenly like, oh, and I thought people get hung up on the sort of budgets and this and that. And people would think that like my second film was like the kind of experience you aspire to. And I just felt like I just wanted to tell people the truth, you know, <laughs> and go, the truth is you can make these movies for this small amount of money. You can raise the money and here's how to do it, you know, and you can have an awesome time. You can have creative control. You can make the films you want to make. And it's amazing, you know, and don't let anyone tell you you can and don't delay that because you're chasing after the sort of conventional thing. Because just as a side note, I have so many friends in LA who want to make movies who get caught up on that like idea of how to make a movie, like how it's acceptable to make a movie. And they're all like trying to attract the name talent. And they're like, you know, they just end up in development. You know, it's like close to happening, but then it falls apart, la la la. And, you know, five years later, they have not made a movie and they, the movie they were trying to make, they don't even remember why they were trying to make it. You know, it's just like, cause now of course they've moved on really. They want, you know, it's probably something else they want, you know, and I just go, it's just a crying shame. Just get out there and make your movies and have fun, you know, and you'll make something awesome if you do it in that spirit. I'm totally convinced. So that's what the book is about. That sounds awesome. So let's just sort yeah. of re rewind to when, can you remember like a specific moment or movie that you watched that made you go, that's what I want to do? Do you know, I, I can't, I can tell you that there were films that I watched that made me think I want to write films, you know? Right. And that was probably like, I mean, I always think of like my big um, awakening being a Robert Bresson retrospective at the Edinburgh Film Festival one year in the 90s, you know? Okay. Yeah, go figure. So I went to Edinburgh <laughs> University. Um, I studied philosophy. Right, okay. I, you know, I was always into the theater. I love books. I always kind of like had some fantasy of being a novelist, I think probably. And, mm -hmm. you know, and movies though seemed like a second art to me. They didn't, you know, like I love them, but I didn't think they were like that, you know? Yeah. And then, you know, I was like, I, you know, obviously I really got into art house cinema, but I remember going to that Bresson retrospective and just being like, oh, and I went to every single one. I saw, you know, like, like it was every day. I just watched all his films in this two week period and just yeah. been kind of like, oh my God, you know, these are as rich and um, nuanced and interesting and profound as any novel. In fact, they're far more so, you know, mm. and it just sort of got me excited about cinema. But to be honest, I mean, what's interesting and, you know, it's funny, like you were talking about all those uh, filmmakers who have like piggyback, you know, jumped from making small sure. indies to making great films. You know, they're all men, right? <laughs> I mean, the only, yes. the, the only woman we've got so far who's sort of done something similar is Ava DuVernay. Um, and, you know, and Patty Jenkins in a different way. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, she, uh, Wonder Woman, that was, uh, that was a, a After great, Monster. Was really yeah. Good. So like, but basically, like for me in the 90s, like, you know, it didn't even occur to me that I could direct a movie, yeah. you know, like it, like the, the idea that I could direct, like I would see these directors, you know, around the film festival and they're all guys, mm. you know, and it's just like, that's so impenetrable. And the sort of the only women that I could see that were doing it were like Jane Campion, you know, and you mm. know, people like that. And they seem like so like magic, like somehow they were different, you know, they were born geniuses. Right. And yeah. I did not feel like I was born a genius. And I felt like, I mean, for me, the struggle to become a writer was so hard because I had no entitlement to it. You know, I, I did not know artists growing up. My idea was that I could not do that. It was not, val you know, it was not valid, be realistic.
unrealistic. It's not realistic, mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff. So it was not easy. And it never, the idea that I could direct a film did not actually present itself to me until I was, you know, until I did it, you know, sure. and at that point I'd been working as a screenwriter for three years. Um, so I, you know, I, I got through that barrier, you know, of like writing, screenwriting, you know, and I was like, I can do this. I can do this, you know? And it was, I guess through that partly, you know, that was like, uh, you know, and my husband, bless him, he was a big part of me having the courage to direct, you know, he's worked on tons of movies and, you know, and he was like, you can do it. You know, <laughs> he would just say to me, just write something you can direct and just do it, you know? Um, but, you know, I didn't like, I can't say like, it's not like, oh, I saw this movie when I was 10 years old and I was like, I'll make movies. It was so far-fetched. I mean, it would have been more realistic to say like, I'm going to be an astronaut and go to the moon. Do you know what I mean? It was just like, it, it didn't exist. I went to Edinburgh University. So I was, you know, I was a student there and, and then the film festival was, I think like really formative for me. My experience is going to movies there and, you know, just like really getting into the um, art house and, you know, film scene, which was like totally fascinating because the world has just changed so much since then, you know, it was the nineties. And then it would be like, you would hear about this filmmaker Ozu and you'd be like, oh my God, I want to see all his movies, but there was no way to see them. (laughs) And then, and then maybe the film house in Edinburgh would show a couple of them, you know, in some sort of retrospective or something. Because Robert Bresson's films, you know, aside from the obvious ones, there were certain ones you could get your hands on, you know, like Pickpocket, right? Or uh, Mouchette or Hazard Balthazar, you could probably find in a, you know, video, in decent video store, the ABC video store in Marchmont. But other than that, it was like, you know, you couldn't get, you couldn't see any of the films. They, they weren't on video. They weren't available on video, you know, and there was no streaming, obviously, right? So it was like, you know, when, when a retrospective came up at a film festival, it was like, oh my God, you get the chance to see all these movies that, you know, you'd never get to see. They got all the prints, you know, they're showing. That was like very, that was, you know, I think that just had a big influence. And also I think seeing, I remember at the Edinburgh Film Festival one year, uh, seeing Lynn Ramsey there, you know, and she was there probably with Ratcatcher, you know, it was like around that time. I think it was the year after Ratcatcher. I think she was just like hanging out, you know, and it was kind of like, oh, that's a woman who's a filmmaker. And that was kind of amazing, you know, because she seems to be having fun and she seems sort of like a regular person in a way, you know, Sure. Um, which was kind of, you know, mind blowing. But as I say, it, it didn't, it still didn't occur to me. I mean, yeah, it was, it was, you know, just something that I, I it was always clear that I wanted to write, you know, in my heart of hearts, I was always, I always wanted to write, you know, that was my thing. Um, definitely. And as I say, I think like the idea of directing, it didn't come about till much later. But then when I did it, I was like, oh my God, you know, I was born to do this. <laughs> why didn't I realize this earlier? You know, why didn't I, why didn't I think of this? You do find that with writers though. I mean, JJ Abrams, he started off as a screenwriter. Yeah. How has he become this huge, like literally massive name? Yeah. Uh, you know, and he's, he's obviously a very clever guy. But I think for many writers, I mean, one of my things is for writers, because I encourage a lot of writers to make the leap into directing, because I think like for so many of them, they are the visionaries, right? And like they come up with the original vision for the movie. And obviously in our industry, you know, if you just then sell your script and, you know, it's not going to, it's probably not going to turn out the way you imagined it in your head, right? <laughs> you know, like the director, like we think of the director as being the auteur of the movie, you know? So I like, I totally encourage um, screenwriters who feel the calling, you know, like to just pull up the, pull up their pants and direct, you know, like get the courage and do it because um, <laughs> I just think, you know, why not? And you might discover like me that you were, you know, that it's great and you were born for it. I think the only female director that I knew before the last 20 years yeah. ago, maybe is Kathleen Bigelow. Yes. Catherine Bigelow. Yeah. And her Point Break, I still think is one of the best action films of oh, all totally. time. Totally. And I think that film would not be the same if I had a male director because it doesn't spend any time glorify anything or it doesn't like allure at something um, which is you know how Michael Bay makes his movies back then in the 90s though really you could you know like you were hard pressed to name 10 female directors you know <laughs> it was yeah. like not easy to do that you know I can remember doing it like who are the women that are making movies you know it's like there really wasn't many at all and it's great now you can name I can name you know I could name a hundred probably you know it's pretty phenomenal mostly indie yeah. nearly all indie but there you go I love films with a good story yeah. if it's got a good story and it's executed well then I'm in I'm like it's gotta be a good story and it's gotta move me like I, I like I really seek to be moved in the cinema I'm very clear about that these days do you know what I mean like when you think about why do you move why do you watch things what do you want from watching something and for me I have to believe it you know like that's the thing like for me to be moved I have to actually believe you know and if I don't believe it then I'm just not in it and that's my problem with a lot of blockbusters for me like I don't believe them you know because everything just looks too glossy everything's too perfect everything's too whatever and so I don't believe in it and so I'm not engaged and I just don't care, you know? And I like life's too short. I just don't have time to watch things that I don't care.
care about. So typically I just don't go after the blockbusters. I just don't even bother. You know, I like, yeah, I don't bother because I, I don't feel like I'm going to find what I'm looking for. You know, I like to be able to just, I don't know. Like even, I, I mean, there's so many of those blockbusters. I just switch them off because I'm just like, I just don't believe it. You know, like they look like they've just come out of hair and makeup. Everyone's perfect. You know, everything's like, it's just, <laughs> I don't believe in this world, you know? But you know, a friend of mine once said something that I love, which is that we were arguing, we went to see a movie at Toronto Film Festival. It was a Harmony Korean film. <laughs> that I, it was that one. What was it? The, like um, Trash Humpers. Oh my God. It was, I mean, I just thought it was absolutely awful. And he thought it was the most genius film ever. And, you know, we're arguing about it afterwards. He said, the great thing about cinema, Diane, is it's a broad church and we can all pray at different altars. And I always think about that, mm. you know, and I like, I really relate to that because I'm just like, you know, I, I hate it when people are sort of like, you know, feel compelled to sort of either, you know, shit on other films or really, you know, or whatever, you know, like, like the, everyone should agree because I just go, it's a broad church. There's so many altars. It's fantastic. I don't have to love everything. Do you know what I mean? I love what I love and you can love what you love and it's all good. There's space for everything and it's wonderful. Yeah, so with this podcast, the idea is to inspire young mm. filmmakers or other filmmakers, not young filmmakers, because if there's people who are older watching this or listening no, to absolutely. this. No, absolutely. And age is not a barrier. You know, I'm always like, 100%. that's one of my things. I'm like, don't ever do that thing where you're like, I'm too old or is it too late? You're not, you know, you can start this anytime that you want. And actually I think being older can sometimes bring some advantages. Yeah. So let's go on inspiring people. So what's the one thing that you wish you had known before you made your first film? Honestly, the experience making my first film was such a joy. And I mean, such a great experience that I can't say there was anything, you know, that I would do differently with something that I'm like, I wish I'd known that. The one thing that I would say though, and you know, that really guided me through that experience and that served me so well was trust your intuition. You know, I just go like, you know, and it's funny because that's one thing I didn't do with my second film, why the experience was so horrible. Uh, You know, I just go, I think the number one thing like for any filmmaker and for anyone that wants to create something is learn to trust your own intuition and be guided by that. Even when it seems to be taking you down paths that don't make sense. You know, when I made my first film and I'm just going to give you a little example of this. I was like, really, I really was just in a zone, I think, because I was, I don't know, like where I was really being guided and I just trusted my intuition all the time to the extent that, for instance, so I'm making this movie, I've raised like $120,000 to make it. And this, the actor who I had involved, he'd given it to this TV actress who at the time was like, you know, top rated TV actress. She was in the, you know, like in the top 50 IMDb star meter and so on. Right. And she was on the cover Mm -hmm. of magazines and whatnot. And, you know, he gave it to her to read and she read it and she loved it unexpectedly. Right. And her manager gets in touch with me and says she wants to do it during the hiatus from her TV show. And we can give you, we can raise like an additional $500,000. Right. Wow. And I said, no, <laughs> I turned it down wow. because like, I was just like, I wanted to cast my best friend in the lead role who I just loved. And I just knew she was going to kill it. Like I knew she was perfect. And I met this TV actress and I was like, she's, you know, I mean, she's good, but she's not it. You know, she's not going to be right in this role. Right now. Everyone thought I was crazy. You can imagine, right? Like you can have someone like you can tr- cast your friend who is completely unknown, right? <laughs> hasn't been in anything, etc. Right. Or you can cast this TV star and get an extra $500,000 for your project. Right. And it will get noticed and all this kind of thing. I just, I said, I don't know. I like, I can't explain it, but I'm going to do it this way. You know, now in, um, with hindsight, you know, and so as I say, this movie went on to be selected to be in Sundance, which is unheard of, you know, it's like, you know, I think that you're like 1.4% of films that are submitted got accepted. Right. You know, you can do the, like, it's absurd. And I just go, I swear if we had cast the films, the TV star, we would not have, gotten, have gotten in. I, you know, I'm telling wow. you, you know, I'm telling you, it would not have been, I wouldn't have got to make the film I wanted to make. You know, it goes back to that thing about the money, right? Like I, you know, like then I would have lost control over it, you know, and this quirky, weird movie that I made that I freaking love and the people who love it just freaking love it too. Right. You know, it wouldn't have been that it would have been all like, it would have been completely changed, you know? And I just go like for any filmmaker, you know, I just go trust your instincts. I think being a filmmaker is basically like sticking a flag in the ground and saying, I believe in this, you know, and whatever, whatever that is. And it's okay. Like you get to believe what you want to believe, you know, and the more courage that you have in, you know, in making the film that you want to make and trusting your, you know, your intuition to do that, the better chance you have of making a great film. The more that you're thinking about what people will want or, you know, what like the conventional wisdom is, what other people would do, the less chance, in my opinion, you have of making a great. So I just go like, you know, just getting into, you know, and it takes massive courage, of course, to just be like, I'm, I'm doing what I love. But I swear, if you make a film that you move 
that you love, if you make a movie that you truly love, someone else will too. If you make a film that, you, you know, it's just sort of like trying to hit all the right notes because that's what you think yeah. you're meant to do. You will make yet another mediocre movie, you know? And I, you know, yeah. I just see those, all those, you know, all those films you go like, why are so many films so kind of rubbish? You know, <laughs> even though they have like, you know, so many great people working on them and it's really for this, you know, um, because it, it's not coming from that place of sort of like, you know, higher guidance in a sense. Like her manager was totally like, I mean, when I said, when I turned them down, I, I literally got the, you will never eat lunch in this town again speech. Wow. Yes, really? Totally. I mean, he totally just tore into me and was like, you don't understand this business. You're never going to get anywhere. And, you know, blah, blah. I mean, he tore into me and I was like, okay. And, um, you know, what was funny though, when the movie got into Sundance and obviously it has this odd name, like I made up the name. So it was pretty unmissable. It was called Obsolidia, right? He actually did email me and apologize and congratulated me. Well, that's good. Yeah. And I thought that's how this town works. You'll never eat lunch until you like have a success by yourself. And then I'll like apologize to you. <laughs> yeah. So the LA thing is we go, oh, I'm going to save up. I'm going to move to LA because that's where everything is happening. Peter Jackson made a horror movie in New Zealand yeah. in the literally, he couldn't be further away yeah. from anywhere and he made it. So I don't buy that. You need to be in a certain place. Obviously it helps to know people. I strongly recommend to people, like I feel like, you know, I feel like it's, you know, at a certain point you might want to be in LA definitely and it definitely served me well. But I feel like moving there when you actually have something under your belt already is the smartest move. You know, not going there when you're still struggling and up and coming. And I feel like, you know, your opportunity to make a movie somewhere else is, you know, like, it, like it's the better choice to make really or to write stuff. I moved there after I had sold my first screenplay. So um, I was living in Barcelona in Spain and I wrote my first screenplay there. And uh, it was a comedy about Mickey Rourke. Um, about, <laughs> I know, it's so random. It was called Mickey and Me and it was about a Mexican voiceover actor who had dubbed Mickey Rourke's movies into Spanish. And it was set during the time that Mickey Rourke <laughs> wasn't working, that his career had tanked, you know? And it was all about this this Mexican voiceover actor like coming across the border and coming to LA to find Mickey and get him back into the movies, you know? And try to help him make better choices. <laughs> and then, um, so I wrote this in Barcelona and and uh, I, I mean, people, I knew some people in the British film industry and they were like, oh, you know, you'll never sell this. You'll never get Mickey. It's crazy. And then I heard that Mickey Rourke was coming to Cannes. It was 2005. It was um, for Sin City. And I thought, I'm mm. just going to go to Cannes and I'm going to freaking give Mickey Rourke my script, right? Because <laughs> I was really just like, oh you know, like until he says no, I'm just like not backing down on this, you know? Yeah. I don't know where the confidence came from because I was usually not confident about stuff at all. I think it was that thing that you said though about the film, you know, it's like just serving the story. And I really believed in the story and I really believed in the script. Like I felt it was something really special. It was like, I want to see there, that. Movie. I know there was something really magical and beautiful about it. Cause it was all about, you know, it was about power and responsibility. I mean, it was about a lot of things. It was about, it was about a ton of things, but it was a beautiful, I thought, you know, I just, and I loved it. And I really felt like if Mickey saw it himself, that he would be like down with it, you know? And so I went to Cannes. I didn't meet Mickey Rourke. I did try, but I did meet a producer and that script ended up who then introduced me to another producer who was working with him at the time. And it got optioned by that producer. And that's when I moved, I, you know, I came to LA just to, just to rewrite the script. I came really to meet Mickey's agent to get him on board. And, um, and then, you know, that all worked out and Mickey was on board. And, you know, I remember, I'll never forget, like, you know, it was only like six months after Cannes that I'm, you know, and everyone oh. telling me it will never happen that I was in LA having lunch with Mickey Rourke and him giving me notes on my script. <laughs> so this shit can happen, you know? Um, and, uh, he was, so, it, you know, that, that was how I came to LA. And I, I really then though, I thought I would just stay for like three months and then go back. Like I thought I'll rewrite the script. I was paid money to rewrite it. I thought I'll stay here and rewrite it. And then I'll go back to Barcelona and resume my life as a yoga teacher. Um, right. but during that time I met my husband, he wasn't my husband at the time, obviously I met the man who's my husband and he had just been working with John McTiernan who directed Die Hard and Predator and Hunt for Red October and a bunch of other movies. Yeah. I, 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 they're quite big movies. Like I think a few movies. done all right. Yeah. Haven't they? Uh, yeah. yeah. Bruce, someone's in the miss, isn't he? Bruce, yeah, uh, exactly. Bruce Willis. Yeah. 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 I think it was, Sean they were slightly a big hit. So yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, him. Yeah. Yeah. So my husband had just been working on a movie with him. He'd done military tech advice on a movie for him. And he was like, oh, okay. John's coming into town. Would you like to go out for dinner with him? You know? And, you know, because I'm going to dinner with him. And I was like, oh, of course I would like to go to dinner. You know, great. You know? So, you know, we went to dinner uh, with John McTiernan and, um, you know, and he said, oh, I hear you just optioned a script. And I said, yeah. And he said, who did you sell it to? And I told him and he nearly fell off his chair because he was like, I optioned my first script to him. <laughs> right? Really? Yeah, it was one of those. And a long story short, I ended up being hired by John to rewrite a film for him. So, so then I ended up, you know, just sticking around. And then after that, John and I, I had the most amazing experience uh, rewriting the script with him, really. And, um, and then he asked me to write an original screenplay with him. So he paid me to write a, an original screenplay with him. So, and that was it. That was me, like, just sort of in LA, you know, because after that, obviously that helped me, you know, get a, a bunch of different writing gigs, you know? I know we did Die Hard and, uh, and Hunt for October. And did he have anything to do with Predator? He did. He did do Predator. Yeah. He directed Predator. Right. Okay. Because that's like one of the best action films yeah. of all time. Oh, he's I, one I, of the I best. To... I mean, he's amazing. Working with him was an absolute dream. Like I just, I, I mean, that was like my film school. Like I just learned so much working on scripts with him. You know, like his way of writing, his understanding of story. It was just like, it was mind blowing. It was so great. He's a genius, you know? And it's, yeah. I mean, he's a storytelling genius. Whether you like those films or not, whatever, you know, again, cinema's a broad church, right? You can have your own opinions, but he's a master cinematic, you know, master of cinematic storytelling, just totally. And what fascinated me when I would hang out with him, I mean, he was like, he's encyclopedic knowledge of film, you know, but he wouldn't just remember the scenes of the movie. It'd be like, he remembers the shot lists, you know? So it's always like, and especially like Kubrick's films, uh, John Ford's movies, you know, it's like, he remembers like the shot lists really, you know, it was just like, um, it was amazing. I had one incredible experience actually with him and Gary Kurtz. Gary Kurtz was like produced the original Star Wars movies, the first two. Like, oh, hang on a minute. I'm just, I'm just going to just totally geek out now because unfortunately I am a bit of a Star Wars yeah. nerd. Not massively, but I do. Uh, the original trilogy. Yeah. Oh, I know. Like so that. I like, so he wanted to do a movie with McT that was about um, Russian female file, uh, fighter pilots from World War One, And he, so McT lived out on this ranch in Wyoming and he was coming out to the ranch in Wyoming for a week to talk about the script. And McT was like, well, I want you to come out because I want you to rewrite it for us, you know? And so I got to spend this week with Gary Kurtz and McT like <laughs> on this ranch in Wyoming, right? Which was like, I was like, oh my God, I would pay serious money to sit in an audience and hear these two talking about film, right? Yeah. Like they were, you know, because they were just sitting there like we just go to the diner and they're just talking, you know, like, like you know, he's telling the stories about making Die Hard and he's telling the stories about making Star Wars. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't even believe this is real. Like I'm just sitting in this diner in the middle of Wyoming listening to these two, you know, it was unbelievable. And it was like so interesting. Like it was so interesting to hear them talking about like their obsessions with cinema and how like for them, you know, cause they're like sort of older, you know, um, you know, like they were going, it's so interesting to them that like people, film students now are like, Oh, the seventies, right? Like, you know, it's like movies started with the Godfather. Right. And, um, you know, and to them, it was all about movies from the thirties and forties, you know, which was just so interesting. And they were going like, and they were really like really concerned about the fact that, you know, young filmmakers aren't going back to the source, you know, aren't watching a lot of the older, older films. It was so fascinating. There was a guy who was on the podcast called James, James Matthews. He was talking about something about sponsorship or something. He does like, he does really well with YouTube. He's great at it. And I said, oh, you should do this. You'll be Brewsted. And he goes, Brewsted? What's that? <laughs> I said, like, Brewsted Millions? And he went, never heard of it. And it gets worse, <laughs> Diane. I said to him, you know the film with Richard Pryor? Richard who? I'm like, you know what? <laughs> the end. I'm off. <laughs> but I think the thing, I think the thing is just about you, you imagine the people who are passionate about cinema, that they would dig a little deeper. You know, like I, I have to say, like I've been teaching workshops in America for over five years now, you know, filmmaking workshops. And I always get them to do this yeah. one exercise where I get everyone to write down like, you know, 10 films you wish you had made. Right. Okay. And, you know, and also like, um, uh, you know, so like I just because I just want to and I was like there are 10 sort of guilty pleasures, 10 movies they just freaking love, you know, they, 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 they just have to watch if they're on. Right. Like the guilty pleasures or even like the ones that you just watch on your own, like if no one else is there and what you would choose to watch. And I'm always kind of staggered because I'm like, OK, these are people who want to make movies, you know, um, and who want to make indie films because they're at my workshop for making indie films. But they're like, I'm just kind of always stunned that the movies are so um, sort of vanilla somehow. Do you know what I mean? Like they're very, they're typically very contemporary, you know, um, from the last 10, 15 years and, you know, and typically American, which, you know, just kind of shocks me all the time because I'm sort of like, okay, like, you know, my list and, uh, you know, 
I, I guess I'm a, I'm a cinephile. You know what I mean? Like, and when, I feel like once you get interested in cinema, don't you want to explore, you know, who are the classics? What are the greats? You know, what is the history of this art? Right. I mean, and definitely, I mean, that's, you, you know, that's what's informed my filmmaking. Right. It's like, you know, like you get into Japanese cinema and you just watch all the old Japanese cinema. Right. And you get in Korean and yeah, I just, I don't know. And it just kind of it fascinates me that people who are identifying as, you know, like wanting to be like being passionate about cinema and wanting to make films that there is not a greater curiosity about the history of the the medium and, you know, and the classics of it. I try and watch as much stuff as I can. I remember watching Crouch and Tiger and thinking, I love it. I don't oh, understand totally. it, but I love it. Yeah. And then I got, uh, I got uh, The House of the Flying Daggers and that turned out to be like one of my favorite films because it's just the cinematography. Every single shot was just beautiful. It could, I could pause it and print it off and put it on my wall and be like, there's a painting. Totally. Um, I think the last sort of big movie that did that for me was The Illusionist. It's a great movie. Yeah. I, I remember the cinematography and that. It was so good and so different. People say, oh, I want to watch a film with so-and-so in it or like, that's what my mom says, I want to watch this film. Oh, yeah. Who's in it? I don't care who's in yeah. it, but I care who's directed it. I mean, sometimes cast can be, like there's some names that you sort of think, oh, if they're in it, it must be decent. You know, I'm trying mm. to think. Yeah, I do feel that about certain actors. Like if I'm scrolling through Netflix, you know, or something looking for something to watch and I see someone's name and I'll be like, oh, it must be interesting because that actor is, you know, they have good, good taste. They're solid, right? I don't know what it's like over there, but at the moment I'm seeing big name actors and I'm talking like iconic superstars doing TV commercials over oh, here yeah, for like totally. cars. Do you really need the money or is this a case of, well, the studio agreed this know, type of deal it's and weird. then he has to do that? I know. It's so Harvey Keitel selling insurance, Robert oh, wow. De Niro selling Kias. I mean, <laughs> if Robert De Niro is going to sell a car to me, then it's going to be like the best car in the, like a Jaguar or oh something. What a Kia? That's crazy. See, we, you know, like I'm of the generation where there was still some idea of selling out, right? Like, you know, it was like, mm. oh, don't sell out, right? And I feel like now it's just sort of like, you know, ever since like Dennis Hopper did the American Express ad, <laughs> I think that was like, okay, there's no such thing as selling out. Everyone just have at it. It's no, it's crazy. I totally agree. It's, and it does like devalue them. It's funny. I remember when I was living in Spain and George Clooney did this like um, ads for um, El Corte Inglés, this department store. And it was like, you know, he was on the big posters and they, they managed to, like, El Corte Inglés, they always got like really big movie stars to be in their campaigns, but they always made them look crap. Like they made them look like sort of <laughs> middle-aged golfing people. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, you're just like, oh no. And it was like, up until then, I thought George Clooney was pretty cool. And I, I was like, oh my goodness. No, no. You know, I, I've never been able to see them the same sense. I, I, I guess it's just the easy money. I mean, you know, it's like a day's work, right? And the agent's like, hey, you know, it's like you're going to work for half a day and, you know, get however many, you know, however many hundred thousands or millions of dollars, right? I mean, I agree. Yeah. I, I totally agree. You're like, oh, do you really? No, no. I know. It just leaves a sour taste. Like one of my. I totally agree. Totally agree. One of my icons, one of my heroes was Bill Hicks. Oh, yeah. Um, totally. And he died when he was like 35 yes. or something, which is insane to me because even now when I watch his clips on YouTube, I look at him and go, he's older than me. He's not. It's so weird, that, isn't it? Yeah. But he did this thing about the moment you do a commercial, you are off the artistic. But this is what I mean, though, you know, because I'm from that, that's what I'm saying, that generation, right? Like that time, like that's how we thought, you know, that it's like you're selling out and you can't sell out and your integrity is everything, you know? Yeah. But somehow that has just changed. And I think maybe part of it is, but some of these people, they don't get off the hook for this. I mean, part of it now, I think for a lot of actors, like budgets have gone down, right? Mm. The kinds of movies, like, you know, some more interesting movie stars, like they're not necessarily making that much money, you know, on the movies, right? So yeah. even if the movie's quite big, do you know what I mean? Like budgets have been squeezed, you know? That's not true, obviously, of the temple movies and if they're doing franchises and all that, you know? But, mm. but you know, there are certain movies that they're not. And I then I understand, you know, that that's where they're going to make their money. You know, that's where they're going to make serious money is doing the adver advertising, you know? Yeah. I mean, if uh, I was De Niro and um, my agent came to me and said, now I know. Said, right, do you want to do this car commercial? And I'd say to him, just go on my INDB and just like list it and it'll list like yeah. uh, Goodfellas, uh, Godfather, And then the taxi. agent just goes, hey, but do you know what? You're going to get like a million dollars. It's like one day's work. And, you know, Dennis Hopper did an Amex commercial. <laughs> 
right? <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> to me, it's sad. Like I just don't. I don't go. Oh, I want to go and buy a Kia. I go. Really? Oh, come on. You've just ruined you know? it for me. You've ruined. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. The, the, it's actually quite a funny commercial. But the worst one is um, Harvey Keitel. Oh my gosh. He's he's like doing the wolf from Pulp Fiction, no. but selling car insurance. Oh, that's embarrassing. That's embarrassing. It's like Harvey. I had dinner with Harvey Keitel once. Oh, really? Yeah, that was a. I have to say, it's one of the. Didn't try and sell you insurance. It's one of the he? only times in my life, one of the only people that I've ever met, where I was kind of like a little bit starstruck, right? And it was like, I think it was that thing there. I was just like, this is so weird. I just was like, this is sport from Taxi Driver, right? Do you know what I mean? Like that's just what kept coming to me, and I was just like, I couldn't really, I don't like. I was like, just like, I couldn't really relate to him as a human being. It's awful, isn't it? I could just see the different roles. So weird. I think that's the magical side of it. Going back to how we kind of started this, Spielberg is not on any social media and I, I'm happy with that because that kind of him not being, it's like, you know, everyone's so easy to connect to, which is great in some ways. You know, I like the Wizard of Oz syndrome. Yeah. The curtain needs to be down. Don't do, if anyone's listening, don't do commercials because you judge for the rest of your life. Totally. It, it's really cool though that you've come on this today. I've really enjoyed it. And the stuff about John McTier, is it McTier and is that because you said McTier? Yeah. Is that, is like, that's what everybody calls him, McTier. Oh, okay. <laughs> what was his, what did he do last? Because didn't, did he go, did he get like sent down he for went to prison while. he went to prison sure, yeah, yeah. so he got caught up in the Pelicano thing you know so he had hired Pelicano to wiretap somebody I think a right. produ- I think a producer so this all kind of goes full circle right <laughs> about like trust your instincts and work with the right people don't be wiretapping people that you're working with man because you're suspicious of them so I think he wiretapped <laughs> the producer and um, and he didn't go to jail for that like obviously half of Hollywood had hired Pelicano and, <laughs> and got people to wire and got them to wiretap people he didn't go to jail for that, but he went to jail for lying about it to the FBI. And um, really, that was it. Yeah, he, you, you know, despite what seems to be the case, you are not allowed to lie to the FBI. Like that is a federal offense. And I mean, I knew him through this period. Like I, you know, when he was going through his legal troubles, mm. and you know, like I think he got some really bad legal advice at different times. Like you know, he pled guilty initially, and then he fought it. Then he kept fighting it, and he spent a fortune yeah. on legal fees. You know, and he should have just like, and the initial judge was like, oh, I think like sentence him to like three months or something. And he probably would have got out after six weeks. But, you know, he fought it and fought it and fought it. And he ended up serving close to a year in a federal penitentiary, which is like a big deal. You know, it's not, it's not like a, it's not a lightweight jail, you know? And, um, and it, 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 it sucked. It was horrible. And I, I, you know, I've seen him since he got out. He is, you know, he's trying to get different projects off the ground. I think our industry just like breaks my heart in certain ways that people like him who are, you know, you feel like they should be treated with, you know, just such massive respect and they should be, you know, like, you know, they should get to make a movie, you know, and instead they're like sort of, you know, shuffled off to the side. I mean, you know, so he is still, he is very respected in France. I think that like they had a big festival for him recently, you know, and he's like seen as an auteur there and they think he's fantastic. He's very, he has been very sort of politicized in many ways, I think, by his experiences. Um, you know, I mean, he said to me about being in jail, he was like, okay, everybody in prison, basically they're nearly all black and he's like the civil war is still going on the people who lost it the last one are winning right now <laughs> you know I mean mm. he is you know um, he's very angry about you know what's happening in America and where America is he is you know he's living in Canada so well, I don't blame him I mean Canada I looks like a good option <laughs> I and I don't even live in America but the whole world like I've, let's I've... move to Canada they're saying they have a good prime minister <laughs> but he's I mean he's like I just honestly my experiences working with him were just like the best like besides from making my own films uh, the best creative experience of my life working with him absolutely just an amazing you know just just a brilliant storyteller you know and just a great guy to work with like what you were saying before about no ego you know like who, like nobody's decision I mean there I was right you know rewriting this film with him in our first experience I've written one screenplay do you know what I mean in my whole life and you know and there I am with this person you know who's like a legend and you know and he would never you would never like he never like he, he listened to everything I had to say you know always you know and it's always like does this serve the story you know and and he was just I mean I just learned so much from him total genius you know and just so he was like, a bit of a mentor to you then absolutely absolutely and he actually gave me like guidance you know with shooting my first film he gave me some good advice for directing it you know um, yeah. yeah and the biggest thing he said he was like well you just have to keep asking yourself what would Boonwell do <laughs> 
Which, you know, but his thing always is sort of like, what do other people do? Like I have to say, like, that's one of his fascinating things. Like he, you know, he works by archetypes, you know, and sort of classical archetypes. And, yeah. um, you know, and so like the movie we were writing together, he was like, it was a terrorist thriller, but he was like, this is a Frankenstein movie. So he was like, you got to read Frankenstein again. And then when we were writing the script, he would just constantly say, well, what happens in Frankenstein at this point? You know, and it's a really interesting thing to do. And he told me that Die Hard, like he got the original script for it. And he said, but I just looked at it and I said, this is a Midsummer Night's Dream. <laughs> <laughs> which, which is like, what? Um, um, but he saw, and I think this is the genius of the movie because I don't think the script was like this. Like he saw it as a comedy. He didn't see it, you know, as like an action movie or as a thriller or this or that. He saw it as a comedy. And I think that's what makes the movie so special, you know, that he brings that tone to it. If he had seen it as like just a straight up action movie, do you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. it would have been something completely different. He was like, this is a movie. He said, it's a, he said, I was always guided by a Midsummer Night's Dream. He said, it was like, I would always be asking you know like what like like how do we make it more confusing during the night because basically he said it's about this guy who gets into this mess and everything gets turned upside down but in the morning he's reunited with his lover so there you have it die hard is a midsummer night's dream not a christmas movie <laughs> which is everyone i don't know if that's you've got yeah, that over no, there he, but here he, he definitely didn't say that he saw it as a christmas movie he saw it as he saw it as shakespeare he saw it as a shakespearean comedy dan it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you yes. tonight i hope you've enjoyed it and i hope uh, uh mctee hears this because the praise you gave him. Oh, he's uh, a, yeah. Well, I, 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 yeah, yeah, indeed. Oh, he does too. I'll send him a link. Yeah, just before we wrap up, it's also worth me mentioning. Yeah. Besides from the book, if that's okay, <laughs> it's like the it. promotion. You know, um, I would love it if anyone's listening to this and wants to connect. My main place, and it's interesting you found me on Twitter, but I am on Instagram like every day. And if you're looking for some inspiration on the path filmmaking, like just in your own Instagram, that's the place to find me. It's at Diane Bell. Um, and I do also now teach some online courses. So they come out at different times of the year. Um, very soon is going to be selling your screenplay. And um, and then the the main one, which is ba- which is like the book, but it's it's a big online course, comes out, I think, in early September. So if you're listening to this around then and you're interested in doing an online course and like really digging into a lot of these things and getting inspired and making your movie or writing your screenplay, do check out courses that I have. And, um, and it's a massive course. It takes you from developing your script, right through to distribution, right? It's like, every, I mean, it's epic. And when you do the course as well, then you get like six group calls and, you know, we get on the phone and we like, you know, just get people through their plans of making their film, of raising the money and making it happen and doing it well. So it's a, you know, it's a big thing. And so the registration for that only opens twice a year. So one time in January and one time in September. So that's, that's when it's coming up next. Um, yeah. And it's kind of like, I mean, you know, like someone wrote to me yesterday, one of the people that's doing, you know, that it was doing it for January and she was like, yeah, I just love it. It's just like this resource. I just, you know, whenever, wherever I am in this process, like I just go and listen to the lesson. Like one guy said, I listened to the lessons like 10 times in a row, you know, just to like get the, get the information in my head. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a lot of his like inspiration and motivation, you know, cause a lot of the things to do with making films is actually just like, you know, for many people is facing a lot of fears, right? Like going out and raising money is like scary to people, you know, but I just try and make it not scary and make it fun. And it's really about breaking down the fears in your brain. So you can just go out there and raise the money, you know, cause the money's out there. I'm always like, it's not, you know, there's plenty of money in the world. If you've got a good project, you're going to get the money, you know, but here's how you do it. So that's a big part of it. And that's on, uh, that's on your website. Yes. You can find out through my website, dianebell.com or go to, as I say, like Instagram always seems to have the more late, more recent news. My, my website always needs to get updated. You know, <laughs> I do have uh, like someone who works with me doing the tech things because I'm not a techie person. And I don't know, the website is me- been, it's meant to have been updated forever. And it seems like it's just this old version, but one day. It's been an absolute pleasure i wish you the best with the book and the courses thanks it's really been a pleasure thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed this episode of cine chill and thanks again to diane bell make sure you check her out at dianebell.com and please subscribe to cine chill for more filmmaker goodness